Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and my guest today is Kelly Grovier. Kelly is a writer. He writes poetry, and he writes about art and culture. He's a regular contributor to the BBC, and his writing on art has been widely published in Wired Magazine, The Sunday Times, The Independent, Art Quarterly, and in numerous books and exhibition catalogs. Kelly's new book is The Art of Color, A History of Art in 39 Pigments, and in it, he tells a new version of the story of art through the beguiling histories behind 39 specific colors and pigments. And he calls this approach to art history, artemology. So Kelly, welcome. And can we start there? Can you explain artemology? Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. It's a uh, an expensive sounding word, artemology, but I've tried to pattern it after etymology, um, which uh, would be a less intimidating word for most people and captures in a certain sense the essence of what I'm trying to do in a visual medium uh, and making an analogy with what people would be very comfortable doing in a literary one. I mean, no one thinks twice about analyzing a poem or a novel uh, through the lens of the backstory or the origin of a key word. So, you know, if you think of, I don't know, Wordsworth's um, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, where he famously comes across a, a, what he calls a host of golden daffodils. Uh, if, if you were to dig a little deeper into the word host and, and you remind yourself that it actually uh, is related to the old French for a multitude or army, an enemy army, uh, which then brings into the context of what might otherwise seem a purely um, delightful and, and uh, you know a joyous poem of coming across this this band of golden daffodils dancing. You, all of a sudden, you bring into the poem via the backstory of that word a whole sense of of threat. And of course, for Wordsworth, uh, gathering armies. Uh, in 1804, which is when he wrote the poem, uh, were very much in his mind. For 10 years, from early 1790s till 1802, he'd been kept from meeting his daughter uh, in France um, who, because of, of gathering armies in, in the Napoleonic Wars. And here, uh, a fresh declaration of war had been declared against France. And, and that was very much uh, in the back of his mind, as in the it really in, in the front of everyone's mind at the time uh, that he writes this poem, and it's a context we can easily forget. Two hundred years later, when we enjoy this poem, we we know that Wordsworth was relying on on a uh, a journal entry that his sister had written a couple of years earlier, where that word doesn't appear, but he has uh, introduced it and introduced it in a way that brings with it a a backstory, a history. Uh, um, that changes the nature of our reading and in doing so um, brings in layers that we would otherwise miss if we didn't probe around in the, um, in the origin of the word. So I, it occurred to me, uh, there are a, a variety of, of things really that um, prompted me to write this book, but uh, among them was this realization that that's not something we really do 
in the realm of visual arts. We we don't really look at the syllables with which artists uh, tell their stories and try to find uh, their fascinating backstories. And they have fascinating backstories. The, the pigments that artists speak in, which is the language they use to write their narratives, is not something that we tend to trace in order to uh, bring in layers of meaning and possibilities, uh, profundities and poignancies that we might otherwise miss. Um, And I thought that was a very interesting way, perhaps to um, shine a new light on familiar works. And so uh, trying to nudge the word etymology in a more visual direction, uh, that's why I coined the (laughs) slightly awkward word, artemology, um, to um, describe the the premise behind the book. No, I like artemology quite a bit, actually. So, and what, was there a thunderbolt moment? I mean, how did it occur to you to transpose that idea of literary analysis into a into a visual art framework? I wish there was a moment when I was walking down the street and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up, but I can't remember what it was. I <laughs> I think I may have auditioned other options, frankly. Um, it may have been a uh, a slower evolution than a um, a eureka moment. Yeah. Well, and so as you started to expand on the idea, how much were you led to write the stories that you did that are that make up the book by starting with works of art with which you were familiar and identifying the pigments in them, the key pigments that then, you know, you looked into their backstories versus starting with the pigments and then finding artworks to to oh, exemplify their use. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a certain sense, I had, I'm often in the habit of writing about contemporary art. And in fact, um, my my earlier um, works, uh, my earlier books in in the area of art history have tended to be about uh, contemporary art. And in one that I wrote a decade ago, a hundred works of art that will define our age, uh, contains within it a couple of works where the uh, the materials used to construct those works were absolutely central to everyone's reaction to that work. And I'm thinking of, of the British sculptor Mark Quinn's um, series of self-portrait, these sculptures that he would make comprised of his own blood. He would take 10 pints of his own blood every five years to create a mold um, of his own uh, bust. And it's very clear that that materiality with which he created, he didn't just use some some generic resin, but it was his blood that was key to the very meaning of that work. Or, or another work by somebody like Chris O'Feely, the British artist who, you know, to, to great controversy, created uh, a portrait of the uh, Virgin Mary. And, and among the many materials he used to create that were elephant dung and snippets of pornography. And again, those materials and the backstories to them and uh, were, were absolutely central to the way people either uh, embraced or recoiled from those works. So I was already aware that in our own time, in a certain sense, um, the, the materiality and the backstories of the materials people use to create works can be at the forefront. But when we think about works from from another era, from old master paintings and so forth, that element 
really isn't something that people think about. And so I was keen to, to, to look into uh, what it was actually that these works were comprised of. And uh, I think I have drifted so far away from the question you asked. I'm trying now to pedal back to it. Um, but I, I hope I'm at least drifting in the direction of something you wanted to hear about. No, absolutely. It was just a question of starting with the art versus starting with the the stories of the pigments. Yeah. But it sounds like you did a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both. I, um, I, uh, I think that I probably, because I, I've become interested in pigments or became interested in pigments and uh, their origins some time ago, already had in my mind some of those fascinating adventures in cultural history when I became familiar then subsequently with what may or may not have comprised this or that work. So it was probably a, a more of a gradual process than um, one way, you know, kind of traffic moving in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe let's talk about, uh, let's talk about some of the, of the pigments themselves. And um, I'm actually going to uh, indulge myself and start by reading the first two sentences of your section on ultramarine to give everybody a sense for the way you kind of tease out the the drama of these stories. Uh, and so you write, ultramarine is a miracle of a color, that the intense blue pigment, which transforms countless medieval and Renaissance works into mesmerizing marvels, was ever concocted at all, is among the great wonders of art history. So... Tell us what it, what about ultramarine? <laughs> well, it's you know as you know, it takes quite a few pages of the book simply to describe not only the uh, you know the very finding of the lapis lazuli, which is the the rock from which the pigment is derived, to, to find and extract uh, that the ore in which it it sits from caves in Afghanistan, ultramarine meaning from beyond the sea, um, that itself, you know, even just locating and, and, and getting the raw ore was an ordeal. But then to take it and somehow to isolate the, um, the resplendent bits of lap lapis lazuli and then to levigate, you know, to wash it and grind it and squeeze it using a kind of um, plastic uh, medium. I mean, it was astonishing how this ever came about, that that somebody could have ever um, gone through and, and made it to the other side of such an arduous process ever to to concoct this rich pigment in the first place. And and of course that um, that ordeal of, of of creating the pigment and and what was required to do so is what drove up its price, making it ounce for ounce more expensive even than gold and therefore a pigment that could only really be lavished on those things deserving of such resplendence like the garments of the Virgin Mary. And so it, uh, it, it is quite amazing how the subjects that deserved such a pigment um, are themselves in a certain sense like the pigment, you know, they, they, they themselves have gone through the ringer like uh, the Virgin Mary you know, who had to watch her son die, but somehow has come out more majestic on the other side. And it's, um, 
it is a pigment befitting of its subject. Mm. And so there, you know, there are plenty of examples of the the quest for creating a particular hue being the end goal of of the activity, you know, identifying mm. the rock and grinding it and doing all this. But there are others that you talk about in the book that are entirely accidental. What, what's an example of? Well, another blue, um, mm. b- because ultramarine was so rare, so pricey, so uh, priced out for, for most um, uh, artists that they, they simply couldn't uh, uh, acquire. If they didn't have a, a, a commission, uh, probably a religious commission for which there was sufficient um, advance to equip them with, with enough of the ultramarine to, to make a, a work, um, that kind of rich blue was was just not an option, and so there there was always um, a search for something that was um, you know easier to come by, more affordable, and indeed there there was at the beginning of the 18th century one of these accidents uh, you refer to. It was in Berlin, a, a quite a, a shifty charlatan character um, by the name of Dippel, Johann Conrad Dippel who some think may have been the model for Dr. Frankenstein. He was born in, in Frankenstein's castle uh, 30 years earlier. And uh, he was busy at work in his shabby little alchemist's lab, um, trying to cook up an elixir for what he believed would be a cure-all for all human ailments. And he was trying to get the recipe right, uh, trying to get the proportions of potash or kind of wood ash soaked uh, and bovine blood, uh, putting the two together, a few other ingredients, just right so that he could cook up this um, this cure-all when he was convinced that he'd, he'd botched the, uh, the recipe and was about to chuck uh, his concoction when the man with whom he shared his lab, someone called Diesbach, who was a, a color man, a dye master, um, he was late uh, fulfilling an order for a, a, a kind of scarlet dye. And he saw this bovine blood and potash mixture and thought, you know, that, that's got to be a pretty good basis for, uh, for what I need. And so he threw in some cochinal beetles, uh, which are the source of, um, of Carmen Red, thinking that, you know, a, a, little, a little bovine blood's not going to hurt creating a rich red um, die. But what by chance he saw kind of bubbling back at him uh, when he popped the discarded uh, concoction on the fire was in fact this extraordinary blue that uh, neither of them saw coming, but they immediately recognized when they saw it um, a gold mine. They knew that uh, so rare was ultramarine that, that if this could be distilled and this experiment repeated, they were sitting on a gold mine, and indeed they they were. Um, and this Prussian blue, which uh, was was soon made available to artists, is in fact what we see when we look at Hawkeye's The Great Wave. That that's those blues in those um, curling waves, um, in fact, are inflected with this extraordinary kind of mystical uh, bungling backstory that no one would really expect that work to have behind it or Picasso's The Blue Room. 
has um, also elements of Prussian blue in it. And if it weren't for this alchemical mistake in the early 18th century, um, the the works that the dazzling blue that we see in those works would not have been possible. Certainly not in the acreage with which those used it in those um, in those particular works. Mm. And so, someone who you know is looking at a at Hokusai or Picasso um, wouldn't get. Uh, even a hint of the backstory, probably knowing that the pigment was called Prussian blue. But there are other examples in the book, for example, bone black that are a little more potentially telling. Uh, is bone black made of bones? It is indeed. It is one of the oldest pigments um, that humans used for image making. And you see it in the Lascaux uh, cave paintings, for example, uh, the horses that um, have been sculpted from bone black, which um, has itself a very interesting kind of uh, story, how, how it's created, um, as its name suggests. And, and this is something that artists um, using the, uh, the pigment would, would have had at least some inkling of, um, is created very in a different way from, let's say, charcoal, another black that that has been an option for millennia. Um, charcoal is made simply by charring the ends of sticks or or the things. It, it creates kind of a, a very matte black, whereas bone black, um, you, you have to make it in a rather more concerted way. You take fragments of bone, and whether those are human bones or animal bones, there seems to be some uh, uh, controversy or rather debate among art historians. Um, but those fragments probably, uh, um, you know, um, acquired through sacrificial rites, um, are then, um, broken into a crucible and then kind of hot boxed in a fire to extraordinary temperatures. And then the, um, the, the, the incinerated fragments of skeletons are then pulverized and washed, uh, levigated into, uh, and the more that you wash and the more you grind and the more you wash, the, the more resplendent this black becomes. And it is something that you see um, uh, characterizing works that you would not expect it to be in, but, but the artists who would have used it uh, would have had some sense for its um, ritualistic origins. Mm. All right. Well, how about Mummy Brown? <laughs> well, Mummy Brown is, um, yeah, one of the most disturbing. I mean, Bone Black is is arguably fair, fairly disturbing itself, but uh, Mummy Brown takes things to a different level. It um, It's a brown that was very popular among the Pre-Raphaelites, and the way even the pigment came about uh, is, is, uh, has to do with a misunderstanding um, that dates back uh, centuries. Um, mamiya was the um, uh, Persian word for bitumen. And bitumen, that kind of black uh, tar that was used to uh, prepare mummies for um, burial. Uh, there was a, a sort of slide uh, in uh, 
people's understanding of what Mamiya was referring to. And, and soon that that slip came to represent the mummy itself, the, the actual um, body of, 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 of an Egyptian um, deceased person. And somehow the um, medicinal properties that had attached to bitumen, mamiya, when it was known as that, also got transferred to the mummy itself, to, to the wrapped body of, of a deceased person. And so soon you had an illegal trade of dead Egyptian mummies that were then being uh, pulverized into a um, in, into a substance, a kind of you know tarry elixir that could be consumed. And it was believed that that consuming mummies um, could cure all kinds of ailments. Of course, it, it wasn't true. But the production of that of that cure all um, led to it being recognized as a useful brown oozy pigment that also could be applied to the canvas. And so it 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 takes this long kind of misunder linguistic misunderstanding from the the name for bitumen to um, the this kind of pigment substance. Um, squeezed onto a palette that that became known as mummy brown, and it really was indeed derived from um, illegally sourced dead mummies. Or yeah, so um, that uh, is not something though that artists were necessarily uh, conscious of. They you know, obviously they were aware that they were purchasing um, tubes. Uh, known as Mummy Brown, but uh, you know, that had that label on it. But it, it it was just assumed, perhaps, by quite a lot of artists that that just simply stood for a rich, umbrous brown rather than uh, the thing itself. Mm. That story is particularly lovely for its fusion of artemology and etymology. It's right. Um, the, <laughs> there's a, a sort of sad, very but very charming story in the book about um, Edward Burns Jones' uh, experience with Mummy Brown. Would you tell that? Yeah, well, his his nephew uh, was Rudyard Kipling, uh, the, the, the English writer who um, tells uh, l- later in life of having been at a, um, uh, I think it was a Sunday lunch or something of the sort, where uh, the family had been together and Edward Byrne Jones's uncle was there and it somehow had been brought to his uncle's attention what the actual origin of Mummy Brown is, uh, which shocked him. And he disappeared. And when he reappeared some time later, it was with his tubes of Mummy Brown, which he uh, then... um, enlisted everybody uh, at this Sunday lunch to help him um, bury in, in a manner befitting of the, um, you know, pulverized pharaohs he was worried uh, actually uh, were inside those tubes and uh, swore never to use the <laughs> pigment ever again. <laughs> and, um, but it, it, you know, just watching that penny drop, you know, where he all of a sudden realized 
what exactly he had been putting on his paintings um, and what it it necessarily inflected those paintings with is very interesting. And it kind of goes to the heart of that, of that realization that you really can't just um, divorce yourself completely from the materiality of the, of the, of the pigments you're working with and that they do actually um, leave their traces in very palpable, profound ways on the works you're creating. Mm. Yeah. And related to that, one of the uh, sort of <clears throat> undercurrent that runs throughout the book um, is the, the potential toxicity of a lot of the things, a lot of the pigments and a lot of the things that went mm. into the pigments. Um, would you talk about lead white, for example? Yeah, well, sure. In fact, you know, if, if I could just digress even for a second, it, it, that sense of toxicity and of, of the way that a a pigment can migrate from simply being a medium with which you tell a story on canvas to being something that actually gets inside you and in and does damage to you um, in a way that the 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 poignancy of that um, was something that motivated my thinking about pigments in the first place, and I. I tell a story at the beginning of the book in the introduction about how I I first started thinking about pigments in that way as something that can sort of seep deep inside us when I I remember coming across a um, a news item um, I think this was in early two thousand um, or late two thousand when um, researchers or news item about how researchers paleontologists had been able to determine conclusively that a skeleton that had been found in Florence in the Duomo crypt um, 30 years earlier uh, was in fact the uh, remains of Giotto, the, the great fresco uh, painter. And they, they managed to do so by detecting within the very fabric of his bones traces of manganese and aluminium and the very pigments that he had been using to create his astonishing works, the Lamentation of Christ and Judas's Kiss. And so these things that, that still to this day um, sink deep in our, into our imagination for their, you know, the, the vibrancy of their storytelling were actually now in the fabric of his remains. He had somehow become uh, his work of art. And that, um, that sense of, of having that, um, that migration of something from the outside going in uh, absolutely um, is an element in many of the pigments that, uh, whose, whose backstories I would go on to, to learn more about. Um, among them is, as you say, lead white. Um, you know, used uh, for for a long time. It, 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 it's a very old pigment, but we might think of it first in work, works like Whistler's um, Symphony in White, also known as uh, the White Girl. Um, you know, this is a um, a, a uh, portrait of his mistress uh, Joanna Hiffernan, who 
um, is standing there in this extraordinary uh, long white dress against a white curtain, standing on a white rug. I mean, there, this just thing is a an absolute uh, avalanche of what appears to be innocence in the painting. It just seems to to um, uh, to cascade with a kind of purity. But of course, lead white is anything but a pure pigment. You create it in a um, rather disturbing way. You take strips of a metal um, at, and dip them, well, coil them, and then soak them in earthenware um, uh, jugs in vinegar. And then you surround those jugs with, with heaps of fermenting animal excrement. And it's the, the carbon dioxide that respires from these heaps of, of excrement that um, reacts with fumes coming off the vinegar to create this kind of patina, this white, pristine patina on the coils of metal that is then scraped off. But, but being around lead white is very uh, dangerous. And it's thought that she, the model, his, his mistress in the painting, having been um, subjected to repeated exposure of lead white in the many uh, sittings she she sat for him when he created other works as well, uh, where she's dressed in white, um, probably contributed to her early death at, at the age of 43 uh, from respiratory illnesses. And uh, it's that unexpected juxtaposition between the, um, you know, the, the putrid backstory of, of, of lead white's concoction and the innocence with that it seems to um, represent in the paintings where it's employed, that is uh, quite extraordinary and brings um, a real level of, um, of poignancy to, to works uh, like Symphony in White. Mm. One of the, an artist who I thought I might come across in the chapter on white pigments is Robert Ryman, who mm. made, you know, made a career for himself on the color. He's not there. And so I was wondering both, you know, if there's a reason why that specific artist wasn't included in that chapter, but also that got me wondering whether um, it was really a fantastically challenging task to, um, you know, to decide which specific artists and artworks um, you used for each color since for any color, you know, the list is nearly endless, I would imagine. It's true. It was challenging. And I think because a, um, one of my, my recent books for, uh, uh, was, was on actually the history of art, but looking at it in a slightly different way, um, through, through, um, the aperture of small details also looked at the whole history of art. I wanted to make sure that I desynonymized my new history of art. Um, that one was a history of art in 57 works. This is a history of art in 39 pigments. And I didn't really want to, um, you know, re repeat my analysis or, or even um, tread on the same ground that I had previously been walking. So that, that, that already created a certain kind of um, delimitation of, of, of artists and works. But when it comes to Ryman or, or other more recent artists, one of the challenges was um, finding 
uh, works that were created with the same kind of historical materials. So Ryman was was almost certainly working with less less lethal um, mm-hmm. paint than, mm-hmm. and so um, it it um, you know thank goodness more stable. Uh, more affordable and a lot less toxic alternatives to some of the um, pigments that I discuss in the book have been um, created and made available since uh, then. And so um, it, it did, however, change the, the nature of what contemporary works and contemporary artists I, uh, I would and could talk about. Right. So, you know, you, as you say, you've thought a lot about this kind of thing, you know, an awful lot about the history of art. Were there any stories that were new to you in the process of putting this book together that were surprising? Yeah. Oh, so many. Um, I, you know, until you start the process of actually applying the anecdote to the work and trying to find in what way, um, those interesting stories might prize loose uh, layers of meaning that that you mightn't uh, otherwise get. You really aren't thinking about the pigments in the same way. So I was, um, yeah, I, I, I would say uh, it would be easier almost to give a list of the things that d- didn't surprise me in the book than the ones that did, <laughs> because uh, really nearly everything did, especially when I started uh, digging around. But I think possibly... Um, Indian yellow and uh, where we come across it in Van Gogh's Starry Night. Uh, you know, we, that, that's a work that um, everyone immediately responds to. No, oftentimes it's kind of that, that um, whirling geometry that, that first catches our eye. And of course, we, we already have a certain empathy for somebody we know was suffering in the way that he was at the time that he made uh, the work, but uh, I guess I never uh, expected to find within it actual material traces of suffering. And that crescent moon that you see in the upper right corner is actually sculpted from something called Indian yellow, which has itself a, a an unpleasant backstory. Um, it, it comes from a, a small um, paddock of uh, cows in uh, India that had been force-fed a diet uh, consisting of nothing other than mango leaves. And uh, then the the urine that was um, massaged from them, they, they, they were no longer capable of producing uh, urine without the help of, of, of uh, someone sort of helping them massage it out of them, was then distilled into these um, yellow clumps that were sent back uh, with the rather kind of, you know, benign uh, name Indian yellow and, and used by Turner in, in many of his uh, kind of luminous sunsets, but also by Van Gogh in uh, Starry Night. And just the, the kind of um, the trauma, the, the torment that is crushed into that story and then finds itself fossilized into the corner of, 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 of a work that we already know is, um, you know, kind of shellacked with, with a certain sort of emotional trauma, uh, just, just brings another layer of, of profundity to it. 
And I think when I had first, yeah, I had heard, heard the rumors and read the rumors that this is how Indian yellow was, was supposedly made. But um, there have been um, uh, art historians who have kind of poo-pooed the idea that that story was true. Um, and that maybe the, somebody who first started peddling that story was quote unquote taking the piss, as one uh, <laughs> art historian put it. But in, in 2019, um, forensic research into the use of that pigment did reveal the presence of acids that could only come from animal urine, um, more or less corroborating the, um, the upsetting uh, backstory of that particular pigment. Mm. So my, my last question then is, do you think that this, you know, deep dive into the history of the pigments has permanently altered the way you do and will continue to look at art? I mean, especially with the, you know, the earlier works that are representative the tendency is to look at a work and see the Virgin Mary, not look at a work and see Ultramarine in her robe. But but do you think that, you know, this will have a lasting effect on your experience of art? I think so. It's hard to uh, put the genie back in the bottle, you know. I, I, yeah. I think it's, it's important not to... Um, you know, you can have an idea and then let the idea have you. And I think that that's not a good way to go. You know, you, you could over strenuously uh, allow uh, these these sort of tricksy ideas to um, over determine how you read or how you uh, appreciate a work. And, and that would be, um, you know, uh, disappointing you you shouldn't overdo <laughs> these things in the same way that one one oughtn't perhaps to get the be the most enjoyment out of wordsworth's poem um reach for the etymological dictionary to try to uh, excavate every last connotation of of every word you know that there is such a thing i mean derrida famously says there is no outside the text and that's true, but if you allow the text to absorb everything, then there, then you really don't have a text left at all. And I, I wouldn't want um, these ideas to overwhelm a, a an enjoyment uh, of a work. And so I do think that um, in uh, moderation, <laughs> you know, in in, in judiciousness, uh, these can uh, these backstories can, and, and this is what I've tried to do in the book show you things that you might otherwise have missed in, in a um, in a painting that is otherwise so familiar to you, you, you may have stopped really looking at it. Um, and so I think in that sense, I, um, I, I do think that this approach will continue to help me uh, enjoy and, and uh, find um, a, a levels of, 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 of exciting possibilities in works that I might feel ha have been fatigued from, from so much looking. And uh, in that sense, I, um, yeah, I think the, the research I've done has indeed, you know, changed the way I look at art. Well, thank you for doing it. Thank you for writing the stories. They're absolutely fascinating. And thank you for your time today talking about it. 
Well, thank you for, so much for having me. It's a, a real thrill to be here. We have been talking to Kelly Grovier about his new book, The Art of Color, A History of Art in 39 Pigments. This book is available now online or at your local bookstore. And thank you for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.